The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Those are verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 34, which is the two verses that we're going to be spending all our time with during this whole season of Advent, beginning today, Monday, November the 28th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. As I said, we're going to be looking at those two verses all through uh, the next, well, probably almost three weeks. Um, it'll, it'll, it'll be a three-week study of that. And then the final week of Advent, we're going to look at um, the uh, life of Mary, actually. So um, for about the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at these two verses primarily, and and we're we're going to look at them in in very expanded ways. And we're going to look at them through the lens of Judaism. And the the, the lens of Judaism with with respect to those two verses are, those are that's uh, a small-ish revelation. There's a, they, some consider there's a greater revelation in Micah, but these are the 13 attributes of divine mercy. And the reason that I want to focus on these 13 attributes is because I think sometimes our language for praise of God is probably the weakest part of our vocabulary and the, the weakest part of our prayer life as well. And so what I want to do is I want to, I want to blow these up make them bigger than life, and I don't mean really bigger than life, I mean just expand them in such a way that we have a greater and greater appreciation for those attributes, those unique attributes, in in essence. Um, They're they're not all the same. They're different from one another. And so what I want to do is give us a better language for praise for our prayer lives, because probably we're good at petition. We're probably less good at adoration. So there, there's, an, there's a model that I was taught way back when I started seminary called the ACTS, A-C-T-S, model for prayer, and that would be adoration, confession, thanksgiving, um, and supplication. So that, that's, that's one pattern for prayer, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. So that's one bottle. So how do we do that first piece well? How do we adore God? Well, well we, can, we need first not just to develop a vocabulary, but for an appreciation, frankly. We need an appreciation for his love. We need a, an appreciation for who he is. Because one of the things that, that can, we can say is, is, is that these are not qualities, really, that are inherent in God himself. So, yes, he's merciful, but what does that mean, that he would be merciful? And, and it, what it would mean is the means of the activity, that the way that he works— by which the divine governance appears to us to be controlled with the recognition that we're finite beings and he's an infinite being. And so any revelation of God that he gives to man is subject to some level of interpretation by finite human beings. And so whenever God gives a revelation of himself, the first thing that we should do is to say, you're going to need to explain that to me because I'm simple compared to you. It doesn't matter how bright you are, what your IQ might be, there, there are still things that you'll never know. You'll never be as intelligent as God, nor will you know all the things that God knows. 
And so what, what we have to do is to submit ourselves in humility to his revelation and say, what's the meaning of that? And I've said this before in other podcasts. What's interesting in, in feels like quantum physics where, you know, it, Einstein didn't care for it. He didn't care for it at all because it, it, it left too many things unaccounted for and too many things that were unaccountable. I mean, one of the oddities of quantum physics is, is that if two electrons are moving in a certain kind of an orbit, you can predict at any given point in time based on the speed as well as the, the orbit itself, you can determine where that electron will be because it doesn't vary with one exception. If... You said, I predict, based on spin rate and all that, if, if, if I predict that this is where that electron will be at point A, okay, then I will be right unless I attempt to observe it at point A. And just the action of trying to observe the movement of that particle changes everything, and it won't be there. It'll be in a different place simply because it was being observed. It's the most bizarre thing in the world. There, there is uh, the CERN collider um, in uh, what Switzerland, I guess it is. They, there's a uh, a thing there. They, they, they disentangled two particles that had formerly been connected with one another, and they fired them in opposite directions in this 12 mile long tube. So they fired these these two particles in opposite directions, and then they spun one of them counterclockwise. The other one immediately began to move in a different direction. It began to rotate clockwise in order to reach equilibrium between these two particles that had once been entangled but were no longer entangled. And that's called quantum entanglement, that those, those things seek an equilibrium even after they're disentangled. And so that, that's a spooky thing. And so what happens is, is, is that some quantum physicists weren't happy with just observing that reality and recording that reality. They asked the scariest question you can ever ask, and that is, what does that mean? Why would that be so? It has meaning. It's not just an event. It has meaning. And so now those quantum physicists who asked that question became philosophers. Well, what I would say is you should become religious people. You should come become followers of Jesus Christ because he knows these things. And so the, the truth is, though, that, that there are so many things in the universe that we cannot know and will never know, no matter how advanced we get as a society or scientifically, there are things that we will never know. We, we honestly will not. And so how do, we, how do we navigate that lack of knowledge? But then how do we deal with knowledge that God gives us directly? And so that passage that I read for you from um, Exodus 34, 6 to 7, that is a direct revelation by God at Mount Sinai. And so what I want to talk about first in, in the next lesson or two is going to have to do with what— what are the conditions upon which this is revealed about God? And then why did he choose this particular time to do it? And as we go through these attributes over the next few weeks, one of the main things that we're going to focus on and look at is if God says these are the attributes of the way he deals with humankind and with his creation, then we ought to see those things played out in the life of Jesus. So that there should be this verbal 
revelation given at Sinai. Now, I recognize it's not completely verbal. It's, not, it's more than verbal, is what I mean, because God's there. There's a theophany that occurs, a, a, a vision of God occurs for Moses here on the mountain, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But, but, but then that verbal revelation should be clearly evident in the life of Jesus, who is the lived-out revelation of God. And so during this season of time of Advent, the purpose for the church is, is preparation. It's the Boy Scout motto, be prepared, right? I mean, Jesus tells us again and again and again parables that, that relate to a master leaving and being gone for a long time and leaving his servants to continue to do their jobs or giving them different jobs while he's gone. And then he expects them to be prepared for his return. He expects them to be in everything to be in the same order or even better than when he left it. And so there's an expectation that, that we'll carry on the work that we've been given to do during this period of time and that we'll be prepared. We won't be slacking off. We won't be, you know, kind of doing our own thing and all that. No, we'll be doing the work that he gave us to do. And so that's the point of, uh, of Advent. And so what we're preparing for is the coming again of Jesus. So we're preparing for the coming again, but we're also preparing to renew our sense of awe and wonder at the Incarnation, at the fact that God came into this world in the form of a human being, taking on the form even of a child born of a woman. And that's a wondrous thing, that all of God could be contained in that child. So we, we need, I believe, a better language a better vocabulary of praise. And so that's what I want to look at here during this season of time. So the, the story that gets us to this revelation of God, so we're going to, I'm going to give you the, the short version of it today, and then I'm going to reflect a little bit on Genesis tomorrow. So the version today, what happens is, is, is that, that God has called his people out of Egypt, right? So he, he brings them out after he does the plagues in Egypt, the wonders that he does there that get the attention of two groups of people. One is the Israelite slaves because the, the Egyptians have enslaved them, but it also gets the attention of the Egyptians as well. And ultimately, Pharaoh, who, who bows up and will not bow to the Lord because he's a god, and so when Moses first comes, he says, let my people go. Let us go three days in the wilderness to worship our God. What he's saying is two things. The, the, the belief in those times was the power of a God was about three days journey. So if we're going to go three days journey into the wilderness, then what he's saying is we want to get outside you, Pharaoh, your sphere of influence and control. But not only your sphere of influence and control, the also the sphere of influence and control of the gods of Egypt, the other gods of Egypt. So we want to be outside your control in order to do this. Well, his power didn't extend that far unless he brought his army out there. So he says, we want to go three days into the wilderness, and not only that, to worship our God, which is to say we reject you and your gods. We have a God. He's not worshiped here in Egypt. We have to go outside here to a place where we can worship him. And so that, that appeal is rejected, and that's when the plagues begin. And in an effort 
to convince Pharaoh that the right thing to do for his people and these Hebrews is to let them go. You know, things are going to get worse for you so long as you attempt to assert your control over these people that you treat as slaves and the, the chil- whose children you're killing in the Nile. This could have gone down in a very different way. God gave Pharaoh a chance and an opportunity to bow the knee and to repent of the evil that he had devised against God's people. Now, they'd been in Egypt for about 400 years, and so we don't know the spiritual state of this slave group. We have no earthly idea. We know that they still had a slave mentality. They weren't prepared for the freedom God had prepared for them. And it's easy for us to have a slave mentality and prefer legalism to the freedom in Christ Jesus that's available to us. And, and we, we like that even less for other people who use their freedom in ways that I don't approve of. And so we judge people based on not God's word and not the freedom that they have in Christ Jesus, but we base it on what we like and what we don't like. And so here what we've got is a slave group called the Hebrews, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they're, they've been there 400 years, and they've assimilated more or less into Egyptian society until they grew too numerous, and a pharaoh came along who said, you know what? I think they pose a danger to us. What if they align themselves with some of our enemies, and then they come after us? Now, I'm not getting into the historical context of that today, but there's reasons to believe that this would absolutely be true. And then, so what happens then is is that they enslave them, and then Moses shows up to deliver them because God heard them. So they were crying out to the Lord from their slavery and, not only that, but the murder of their male children. And so Moses comes. The plagues come. Finally, Pharaoh says, you can go. In fact, he says, please get out of here. And, and the Egyptians give them lovely parting gifts for their journey. And so th- those things typically tend to become here the the accoutrement of the tabernacle in the wilderness and all the vessels needed for that tabernacle in the wilderness. And so they come out. Pharaoh chases them to the Red Sea. They come through the Red Sea on dry ground. Pharaoh's army comes after them, and they're swallowed up by the Red Sea. And then there's a great rejoicing. Then three days later, there's a questioning of God because there's no water, and we have to have water, and it's, it's an actual human necessity. And so then they come out, and they finally come to Mount Sinai, the place where God had told Abraham, the sign that I'm giving you, that I'm with you, is you'll worship me here again on this mountain later. And so they show up there, and, and the people are duly afraid, scared to death, might be a better way to say it, of God's theophany there at Mount Sinai, because it's thunder and lightning and thick cloud and darkness and all this stuff. And then the voice comes, and it scares them to death. And they plead with Moses, hey, we've, we've heard the first Ten Commandments. That's enough for us. We're scared. We accept the terms of this covenant. However, we just want you to be our representative and our mediator between us and God because we don't think it's safe to be near him. And so Moses and God both say, okay, this works. So Moses goes up for 40 days on the mountain. The Lord gives him um, the word, the commandments. He gives him everything. And then at the end of that 40 days, God says, hey, I'm going to destroy this people. He said, what do you mean? 
He says, look at them. They're down there worshiping another god. They've made a golden calf because they thought Moses had disappeared and wasn't coming back. So they made a golden calf and says, these are our gods who brought us out of Egypt. And they're replacing Moses with those things. They're gonna, they want to use them as um, substitutes for Moses. The, the language that they use for these things, the way they bring them out, they're two different verbs for bringing them out. God, his work, has a specific verb for bringing them out. And then Moses, when it says he brought us out, it uses a different verb. So it's two actions. One is done as a, a, sort of a, a, a proxy for the other. The, re- the recognition that God's the one who brought them out is not at stake here. It's, we don't know what's happened to this Moses. They assume that God killed him. Some Jewish traditions say that there was a vision in the sky, and that vision was Moses with his arms outstretched, his feet down together, and his head bowed. And they say that the Satan put that there in order to disillusion the people and cause them to despair. So that's why they say this happened. That image looks very familiar. Think about that. A man with his, with his arms outstretched, his feet down, and his head down. Sounds like Jesus on the cross. And so here, what we see is, is that, and then he pleads with God not to destroy the people. And God hears his prayer and accepts his prayer and then says, all right, we're going to start this all over again. And, and, and Moses said, can I see your glory? And God says, you can't see my face. I'll let you see my back as I pass by. So what we've got is Moses has gone back up onto the mountain. He has cut two tablets of stone like the first two. He goes up as the Lord commands him onto Mount Sinai, took in hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And that's when we hear it. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the ch- on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And then what happens next? Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it's a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And then God renews the covenant with this people. But, but what, what's been revealed? What, what's happened here? These people committed a mortal sin. They decided they wanted to replace God. They decided that they, that they wanted something else, something safer than the God of Mount Sinai. And then they, they, they want something that, that doesn't scare them as much. And so if you build something with your hands, you've already got a priest, Aaron, and you command him to do your bidding, and he does, he makes these calves. And so that's tame. God's wild, and they're afraid. And they want a God that's tamer than that. They, they want a God that they don't, they don't live in perpetual fear of. And so what happens is God reveals, that's who I am. 
And Moses' response, when he says, If I've found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it's a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. What he's done is he said, Oh, thank God you're that kind of God. Because if you weren't, we wouldn't survive. Because we're a stiff-necked people. We're a sinful people. And we need a God who is characterized by mercy and his gracious dealing with his people. We need exactly that kind of God. It's the most important revelation these people could have gotten because now they can know that it's possible for their sins to be forgiven and therefore they can do, they can obey him and follow him in such a way that they will not perish because of their sins, there's a way of getting mercy. If he's a God of strict justice, we're completely out of luck, and none of us is going to live more than a few days, tops. However, if he's a God who forgives, if he pardons iniquity and sin, then that's a God we can live with. He might be fearsome. He will always be fearsome. Remember, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, but it's only the beginning. Because now we get a further revelation. Yes, he's a fearsome God. We should stand in awe of him. Our knees should tremble and we should fall to the earth to worship him. But at the same time, knowing that he's not a God of just justice, he is a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. And that's the reason we can sing Amazing Grace, because we know what it means that he is a fearsome God and that there is justice in the world that will come one day. But we also depend on the grace and the mercy that he reveals here at Sinai and then ultimately in, in glory in his son taking on flesh, taking on sin, taking on death, and bringing life. It's important to know what kind of God you serve, and it was vitally important for them because now they could live with the correct fear of the Lord.